there, you wonderful people, and welcome to another episode of Fuds on Film. This time, it's our intermission episode for September 2020, and tonight you've just got two of us again, one being me, Drew, and the other being, not me, Scott. That's me. He's right. <laughs> he is, you know. He often is. <laughs> I'll start waffling now. We'll be talking about films instead, Scott. I think I'm on stronger ground there than, you know, <laughs> speaking to people that I can't see. <laughs> Not that I often speak to people I can't see. Please don't get the wrong impression. The tablets help with that. <laughs> well, I suppose talking of um, people we can't see, uh, we may actually have a link there to our first film, which is the Charlie Kaufman vehicle, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Yes, and Charlie Kaufman has, I suppose, long been the mass market acceptable face of art house nonsense, at least up until the confounding Synecdoche, New York craters at the box office, perhaps proving a touch beyond the upper limits of most people's tolerance for art house nonsense. Hell, as a more often than not lover of art house nonsense myself, it was well beyond my tolerance. And I'm sad to say, up front, that this is very much the case for his latest I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which will perhaps colour the lack of effort that will be putting into this review going forward. Uh, the film is framed around a trip by a variably named young woman, played by Jessie Buckley, and her boyfriend, Jesse Plemons' Jake, taking a car trip to meet Jessie's parents, played by Tony Collette and David Thewlis. The drive is beset with some relatively meaningful conversation interspersed with the young woman's occasional drifts into reverie, which, from my adult memory, perhaps sets up the themes that I think Kaufman's hoping to explore in the next section, but I may be giving it a little bit too much credit in that regard. And in said next section, the awkward visit to Jake's parents' farm. It jumps around so much in time, character history and narrative that there's really no point in me trying to explain any of it and as far as I'm concerned, attempting to divine any meaning from it. It's very much next to New York levels of confounding art house nonsense and I'm very much not here for it. Perhaps I'm being a little bit too close-minded and I can see that if you're looking at this more as a text to read and interpret then you may get a great deal more of it with this. Personally, I think it's asking a little bit too much of the audience to reconstruct quite so much of the meaning of, well, everything in the film, and I found myself entirely checked out of things by the end. There's clearly lots of good work going on here, from committed performances from all of the cast and all the technical details and the arbitrary dance number, uh, but it's all in service of something that's, if not entirely impenetrable, at least more effort than I consider it worth to penetrate. Who are misses? Uh, I'm thinking of ending things as not, I suppose, in the technical sense of things, a bad film. It is, however, a film I roundly hated and hope to never think of again. So, strong <laughs> non-recommend. Drew, did you make anything of this? <laughs> am I am I just being very dense here? Did I not see the obvious messages in all of this? Um, to be honest, Scott, I think to a degree, yes. But a lot of it is quite obtuse. So, if you're not invested in it at all... I can see why you wouldn't see them and why you wouldn't care to look for them. And that may be the one of the bigger issues with the film. I was quite enjoying bits of the film, certainly. I found that I was quite enjoying the conversation between the car, certainly the car right at the start. And there's a lot of like strange stuff going on. And I'm, I wasn't really sure what to make of it for a while. And I'm, then there's all these like strange jumps happening. I'm thinking, well, clearly it's a dream then, not because of the logic, but the fact that the character's not responding to anything. Not like reacting in a way that were it meant to say a, a horror film or something that somebody would freak out or question something, just accepting of it. 
And I actually kind of find myself got drawn into it. Then it got to a point where the film, it, it felt like it was coming to a conclusion. Round about the point where the, up until that point, closed basement door was about to be opened. And I felt that that was very much uh, like a, it was like coming to an end point. And then I looked at the running times and there's still an hour to go. How is this possible? Well, it's possible by bringing in the ice cream parlour, I think, that it is haunt, <laughs> Tul- that Tulsi run Town, by ghosts. Yeah. I think that's the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've done quite a bit of reading uh, since I watched this. And and the, the big twist of it, I, I'd worked out about two-thirds of the way through because there were enough clues by that point. But the actual... Apparently the book it's based on is much more explicit in what's going on and Charlie Kaufman's screenplay has decided to be to obfuscate it a lot and be less on the nose. And but I had worked out and I think there's enough clues there about what's going on, but it's just I'm not sure what it leads to it's like this is a film that I can see me hating and I didn't, even though it does seem to last forever. But it's I don't know what the point of it is. I don't know what it's saying. I don't know whether I should put a spoiler warning in here, so possibly so, you know, skip forward 30 seconds, but the entire point of the film is that Jessie Buckley's character doesn't exist. She's an imagination. She's the janitor's imagined her, because the janitor's the older Jake. Mm. And I'd worked out by that point that, and I was actually fairly confident quite early on that Jake was a janitor, particularly when you find out that his overalls are in the washing machine in the basement. Yeah. But once you find that out, there are clues there, and um, even if some of it's quite obtuse, but there are... It's not so much the structure of that that I get. And I have seen some websites where I was looking some information on this up, suggesting that you need to both watch the film and read the book it's based on twice to get it. No, nope, that's not happening. <laughs> it's got to be good enough in the first place to warrant that. Yeah, and it's constant references to Oklahoma, you know, that great happy American musical by Rodgers and Hammerstein that has a song where the main character is trying to encourage the his love rival to kill himself. You know, the happy <laughs> clappy musical. <laughs> And then it seems so, like almost completely based on reference actually, because even the ending is a speech lifted directly from A Beautiful Mind. Yeah. It is John Nash's acceptance speech from that Ron Howard film. (laughs) Um, And like the whole thing's based on reference because there's a speech and and Jesse Buckley actually tries to sound like Pauline Kael. um, And even without knowing that, this, when she's talking about a woman under influence, um, even if you don't know Pauline Kael's voice or anything, like, I think you could probably guess because at that point they've been very clearly focused on the Pauline Kael book inside Jake's bedroom. Yeah. Um, and then like the weird thing is like, the picture of the young Jake looks exactly like a young Jesse Buckley. So there are clues there about what's going on. I just don't think it says anything useful. It feels like in particular that last section of the car journey where with the Pauline Kael speech and there's some other things going on there too and when they take their strange trip to Tulsi Town, the like Dairy Queen-like place, like it does, it feels to me not like it's trying to say anything but rather that it's the 
the writer saying, oh, look how clever I am. It yeah. really, really feels like that. I don't think it says anything about the human condition or even like cynically, perhaps something like, uh, you know, we're all products of our influences or something. I honestly don't think it's saying that. I think it's saying, look at all the stuff I've read. I'm yeah. better than you. Which is kind of how the character is. Like, like Jason says, always portraying himself as like the smartest person in the room and stuff. But I don't know, it feels quite egotistical. Yeah, certainly by the time it got to that point, um, I had I had entirely checked out of all of it. But <laughs> at that point, it felt very much like it was just trying to be, be like, look, if you told me this was a film student's interpretation of a David Lynch film, and this was their kind of knockoff of it, that, that would have felt about right for it. It just didn't have any kind of actual backup to its art you know it, it didn't feel like it was saying anything at all and uh, yeah I, I, I did get from that bit in the with the overalls I suppose I did, I did actually think this was the same I, I did I suppose at that point yes I, I knew the twist then I just didn't care um, and so yeah. it didn't make any impact on me so yeah uh, it, no, the whole thing was bad I liked the dance number maybe we should just watch the dance number it was quite good uh, that's the one bad I didn't like because I, I've never cared for interpretive dance because I never think it interprets anything but it's no the were bits of it I was really enjoying I did actually enjoy the performances although I think perhaps my favourite performance was David Thewlis who was clearly mm. just having a laugh Yes. Um, everybody else is taking it so seriously. He's just goofing about quite clearly. <laughs> I mean, that, that really amused me. Mm. It's, it's just I don't think it said anything at this point. I did enjoy it. It's much more than I expected to after the way you had described it when you said you'd watched it. But I mean, I don't think there's quite as much mystery in there as people think there is. It definitely, again, from what I've read, there's no way I'm reading this book. It doesn't sound interesting. But <laughs> that, yeah, the the identity of the people in there is not as explicit as it is in the book, but I say I'd, I'd worked out and I was fairly confident. I didn't think it was, it was that out of the ordinary that I think that people would, would get that. I just, I mean, and I was pretty convinced from the beginning, the whole film was about suicide, which I think it is. The title's a bit of a uh, giveaway for that, yeah. Well, yeah, see, thank you. This thing, like, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't seem like it, sorry maybe I'm maybe I'm missing something but it didn't seem like it was a huge jump of logic sorry oh, <laughs> maybe see, I did get it I just didn't care that's the thing it's just oh, but here's yeah. the thing though Scott again from the reading I've done and I read quite a few texts and it's just to see what people thought of it and like almost everything I read started off saying it could be taken in two ways it could be that Jesse Buckley's character is a young woman as she's called in the credits is talking about ending the relationship and like it took me like literally an hour and a half into the movie to even consider that other thing <laughs> from the beginning I had assumed it was about suicide and then three quarters of the way through the film I'm like oh wait was she talking about the relationship and then like you know, 20 minutes later I was like no no I was right yeah. <laughs> So I read all these takes and like you could take it two ways and like, I honestly never considered another way till almost the end of the film and I thought, have I been stupid? <laughs> I'd assume that's what she was talking about from the start of the film. I didn't think there was a double meaning at all. I'm like, no, there isn't. <laughs> um, yeah, it's I just, I don't know what it's saying. That's the problem. I didn't not enjoy it, but I just didn't see the point of it. I clearly didn't have as bad a time with it as you. I certainly would struggle to recommend it. It's very much not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
if somebody's genuinely expect you to watch the film and read the book twice before you get it all, it's like, no, it does not deserve <laughs> that. It's, it's not interesting enough to... And back, I mean, it's clearly stuffed full of references and ideas, and you could spend a lot of time unpacking it. I just think by the time you did it, it's like, well, I've got the big pile of stuff now. It's telling me nothing. <laughs> God, now it's all over the floor. I'll need to sweep it up. What am I going to do with this? I know. This is just one's leak. I'm going to have to put some sand down to soak it up first. It's... Charlie, you've just made another big mess. Ooh. <laughs> Did you ever go back to Synecdoche? Um, well, the film, uh, not the place. Uh, uh, you're confused about Schenectady. Yeah. Synecdoche and Schenectady. No, I've never actually seen the Synecdoche in New York, I don't think. Oh, Philip right. Seymour Hoffman in that, isn't he? Yes, that's one, yeah. I, thought, sorry, so, I think I, we covered I that in the one-liner, but I'm, I, I have never seen it, so I guess it would oh, just okay. been you at the time. That was, a, that was a while ago, though, wasn't yes, it? Yes, that's... Uh, Probably why I assumed you were there. It's uh, you normally were. Um, yes, um, same trappings, I suppose. Um, if you're the kind of person that got a lot of joy out of that one, you'll probably like this. Um, if not, then mm, probably not. I, I'm still, I'm still in the hard pass bandwagon for this one. Um, wouldn't recommend. Yes, maybe give a go to Anomalisa instead as a previous work, which we'll probably get to covering very soon. Clearly, my experience was somewhat better than Scott's. I just. I had a better time with it, but I still don't think it's saying anything. I think it thinks it's a lot cleverer than it actually is. Yes. Yes. But speaking of Bill and Ted Face the Music, um, <laughs> would you like to talk about that film now? Yeah. Seamless. Seamless. Okay, Scott. Hey, you want to play 20 questions? Uh, okay, I got one. Are you a mineral? Yeah. Are you a tank? Whoa! Yeah, good one. <laughs> So, I've been waiting since 1991 for that to make sense. And Bill and Ted Face the Music, the long gestating sequel to Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, conspicuously fails to address this. <laughs> so it can get bent. Zero stars. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bill and Ted Face the Music finds our titular heroes, played by Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves, having thus far failed to write the song that will unite humanity and save the world. And Wild Stallions, rather than being the stadium-filling rock behemoths they ought to be, are in fact a wedding band, destiny being quite the burden to put on people. But at least they have their families, the princesses, and now their third different castings, Ted's dad, Hal Landon Jr., Missy, Amy Stoch, now married to Ted's brother, and their daughters, Thea Preston, played by Samara Weaving, and Billy Logan, Bridget Lindy Payne. Our hero's failure to write the prophesied song, though, is about to catch up with him, as Rufus's daughter arrives in the future to tell them that time and space are all collapsing and stuff, and that the universe will end in a couple of days if they don't produce the goods. To this end, Bill and Ted decide to just hop through time to visit various different versions of themselves to find out whichever version finally wrote the song, and then snaffle it. Simple. Except for the totally not a Terminator evil killer robot, Dennis, that's chasing them to fulfil the future Supreme Leader's belief that it's their death that will unite the world. Most non-non-heinous. Meanwhile, Thea and Billy take a time trip themselves to help their dads with the objective of forming the world's most excellent supergroup. 
Now, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves, along with writers Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson, have been at pains over the last decade to convey the message that this belated sequel is not simply a cash grab or an attempt to capitalise on trends of 80s or 90s nostalgia, that they're just friends who love each other and the characters. And I believe them. The film, like the characters, is refreshingly free from cynicism. The characters are problems, but they all love each other. There's no real conflict, at least beyond that which can be remedied by salving wounded pride, and they retain the harmless innocence of the two teenagers who travel through time to find Socrates, Beef Oven, and Bob Genghis Khan. <laughs> and that's kind of nice. And not just in this epic show of a year, but well, at any time. Which is not to say that the film is without problems, as it isn't. And perhaps the most glaring one is Keanu Reeves, who, well, more than anything, seems to have forgotten how to play Ted. It's like he just doesn't quite have that character in him anymore, which is a pity. Much of that is made up for, though, by an extremely keen Alex Winter, who doesn't even act nowadays, having been playing his trade behind the camera for much of the last three decades. Winter seems delighted to be revisiting his most famous on-screen role and his enthusiasm is most excellent. Face music suffers from being rather loose and unfocused, though that's a criticism that can also be levelled at the previous two films, so it's fitting. Once again, the princesses could be admitted entirely without anyone even noticing, but their presence here does at least offer up a particularly entertaining marriage counselling sequence. Smara Weaving and Bridget Lindy Payne as Bill and Ted Mark II are great and their subplot, while a rehash of Excellent Adventure is fun and William Sadler's return as the Grim Reaper is entertaining too. I would describe Bill and Ted facing music as alright and definitely the least of the trilogy but given how badly something like this could be messed up I'll take that as a victory particularly when my time was respected with a completely appropriate 91-minute running time. (laughs) Sometimes nice, and also not awful, are good enough. Yes, I enjoyed this. I thought it was funny. I laughed a lot. I could probably just end it there. That's about as much as it really can to say about Bill and Ted's uh, face music. It it is pretty good. Um, I could could pretend to be upset about its um, time travel mechanics, but... uh, I think it's better to just go by the Austin Powers rule for that one. Um, None of the Bill and Ted films have cared, Scott. So why should you? No, no it is, it's not. It's not focusing on that as a as a major plot mechanic, really. <laughs> yes, it, it's it's funny, and I like all the characters. It's nice to see them again. I thought um, the two, you know, Bill and Ted's kids, uh, Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy Payne, do incredibly great impressions of a young Bill and Ted and I thought that was very funny all the way throughout and uh, I almost wish it had just been about them um, <laughs> yes it, it's it's funny it's got lots of funny little situations and I liked it um, I will probably never think of it much again I, I'm i not sure anyone's a huge fan of Bill and Ted but I've watched them and I liked them and this one I've watched it and I liked it and I'll probably not watch this ever again but if I did I'd probably enjoy it quite a bit at that point as well it's a nice unassuming safe little comedy um i liked it a lot yeah i went i went back to watch the first two films again before this which i hadn't seen in years hmm. um especially excellent adventure uh i had forgotten quite how fun excellent adventure was i mean it's in the title drew it's excellent <laughs> oh, this it's most excellent <laughs> really um and i don't know I, it's I think even from the beginning, it's just, it's not cynical. It's just fun. 
Yeah, yeah and it doesn't have like the really tiresome high school tropes of, I don't know, bullies or them being outsiders or something. They're yeah. in their own wee world and they don't care, but they're really good friends and like, that's nice. <laughs> um, and it was remarkable at the time. It's possibly even more remarkable now. What I was disappointed to find out though is that the Bill and Ted theme tune that's been stuck in my head for the last three weeks constantly uh, isn't actually in the film at all. It must have only been in the animated series, which I remember watching as a kid. <laughs> Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, most outstanding in every way. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, I watched this and like, it's, it's forgettable fluff, but it's just, it's the right sort of silly. Yeah. Silly with heart and no consequence. And it's, and clearly, the characters, the actors are enjoying it. Yeah. And I think that really gets transmitted to the screen, particularly in, in the most recent case with Alex Winter. And it's just a lot of fun. Um, as I, the fact I'm still talking is probably more than it deserves, but if I stop talking, I'll have to think about everything else that's happened this year and I don't want to. <laughs> don't make yes. me, Scott. Yeah, as you mentioned, if there's a, if there's ever a year for entirely uncynical, enjoyable fluff as an escape, then this is definitely the year for it. So, you know, kudos for its timing, I suppose, in that regard. Yeah. Station. Station. Okay. Talking of uncynical fun, let's move on to Beastie Boys story, Scott. Yes, uh, the Beastie Boys story, and the Beastie Boys story is, and let me pause for a minute to prepare you for the sort of galaxy brain level insights that you come to this podcast for. This is the story, right, of the Beastie Boys. Sorry, I'll, I'll just give you a moment, because you'll probably need some time to recover from that level of knowledge bomb being dropped on you. Um, it is a filmed stage show where the surviving members of the band, Michael Diamond and Adam Horowitz, narrate a pothead presentation of their life and career from their early days through to the initial success with Def Jam as a frat bro rock rap parody of themselves, and then their regrets about becoming that mask, and their long road to re- reinvention and success on their own terms, a path ended after the untimely death of Adam Young. To a degree, I'm not sure there's much need for more of a recap than that. Mike D and Adrock prove themselves to be engaging storytellers, and it's an interesting story for fans who have some interest in their career. While I don't think there's anyone who would find this a disagreeable watch, I'm not sure it's going to do all that much for people that aren't already fans of their work. Thankfully, no such inhuman creature exists, so this is a moot point. <laughs> Imagine not liking the Beastie Boys. The concept gives me the collie wobbles. It's not immune to criticism, I suppose. Um, it's not exactly a warts and all expose, but then again, there doesn't really appear to be all that many warts to be exposed on these guys. They seem to be almost universally well regarded as artists, with their only blemish being the unabashedly misogynist lyrics of their first album, which have mostly been suitably and bashfully apologetic for pretty much since the start of the 1990s. So you could also say, and again, let me pause for a minute to prepare you for the sort of galaxy brain level insights that you come to this podcast for, that this staged performance of a stage show recorded on stage comes across as a little stagey at points. Shocking, I know. Look, there's a few asides that were presumably at some point ad-libs that they like to then incorporate it into the telling uh, that seem a little forced. However, at this point, I am very much picking at nits. Um, I shouldn't give the impression that this is just them on stage delivering a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, there's plenty of 
cuts to archival footage as either B-roll or to show an important or funny moment. And director Spike Jones and the editors, uh, Jeff Buchanan and Joe, uh, Zoe Shack have done what they can to keep things visually interesting despite the limitations of the format. So yes, minor quibbles aside, while the Beastie Boys story is by no means life-changing cinema, it's a light, breezy, sometimes touching and often funny look at one of my favourite artists and I enjoyed it a great deal. Yes. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we will be shortly because I've not much to add. Uh, I've liked the Beastie Boys for a, a very, very long time. Um, mm-hmm. Longer than I probably want to admit to myself, to be honest. Yes. And honestly, if I'm a look even half as good as Adrock does when I get to his age, I'll be very impressed. <laughs> yes. Uh, he does not look the age he must be. Yes. Um, he's very healthy and happy. Uh, yes, yes, Mike D did as well, which actually is quite nice to see because people in the music industry don't always look like that. No, I mean there's certainly a bit of artificiality about it. Although I don't think I felt maybe quite the way you did, Scott. About, like you felt like the maybe some anecdotes they liked felt a wee bit shoehorned in, but it still it feels quite genuine. Yeah, a lot of it, the way they're talking, and I, I don't think when Adrock's sitting down on the edge of the stage at one point talking about MCA. When the tears come to his eyes, I don't think that's fake. I think that was. Oh real. no, no, yeah. And there's some really touching moments like that, and it's quite an unusual way to do this to to have the stage show, then basically film the stage show rather than just create a documentary from the same footage. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I kind of like it actually because the the wee bit of the audience feedback, it just I don't know, it gives a wee bit of warmth to it. Um, yeah, it definitely comes they, across more as a celebration than a sort of um, any kind of model and looking at the, the the trouble points it's more focused on the high points and I think the audience kind of responds to that and it gives it a, a nice upbeat feeling which seems yeah. to fit all their personalities so yeah um, cool. I mean they could have dropped the Steve Buscemi and Ben Stiller bit at the end I'm not quite sure what that added mm. but yeah it's just you're right it's not worse at all and if you've read the Beastie Boys book that came out was it last year the year before not much of this is likely to be new to you, but hearing them say it in their own words and the clear kind of easygoing nature between Mike D and Adrock on stage, and then like they've worked with Spike Jones for years doing music videos and stuff, and it's like yeah. the occasional shouts from the back of the auditorium from him. <laughs> and just that kind of just easygoing banter that that's clearly real, it's not forced at all. It's just, it just nice, it just makes you feel even better disposed towards them. Yeah. I think perhaps the only frustration I have with the film uh, it's, it's about two hours, isn't it? Um, I could have watched another hour of this easily. <laughs> and there are there are clips during the end credits of bits that didn't make it into the final cut, like little anecdotes and other bits of stories. Like, oh, well, tell me that. No, don't don't leave that to the end credits. Why do you put? Oh God, I want. Please finish that. <laughs> I was actually getting quite frustrated. It's like this all sounds really interesting. I'd like to see more, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's again. Um, I know it's, it's not just the year, but the, the complete lack of cynicism there is nice, and it? it's like they, they talked about times when they weren't particularly getting on particularly well. But it's just like you know, it wasn't just like really bitchy or anything like that. Was settling scores or trying to make themselves yeah. look good or anything, and it's nice. <laughs> and, and their music's brilliant, so you know, it's all upside for me. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes, um, yeah, it, it is an enjoyable little film. Um, I, if you've even the vaguest bit of interest in the Beast of Boys's music, it's well worth looking at. I didn't actually know all that much about uh, their either their creative process or how their work really fared in the grand scheme of things. I just seem to have. It, I know there must have been a time when I wasn't into the Beastie Boys, but I can't remember it. Um, yeah, from, and from my point of view, like everything, even like Paul's boutique on, it's like uh, I, I was just convinced all that must have surely have been you know hugely successful and influential because it wasn't me. <laughs> because yeah, that's, because uh, so that's exactly what I was going to mention, Scott. Was Paul's yeah. boutique precisely that? Because I'm watching this thing. Paul's boutique bombed. Yes, really. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> that, that album. Yeah. So yeah, we're on the same page. That's quite. That's nice. Uh, yeah, it's just it's quite an interesting way to do this, and it's just it's funny, it's entertaining, it's informative, it's all good, really. It's yes. not an earth-shattering thing, but it's it's certainly well worth a watch if you've even the vaguest interest in their music. Absolutely, absolutely. But is Mulan worth a watch? That'll do. That's fine. <laughs> No, and that will also do. <laughs> you know, one of these days, I will actually just, um, <laughs> just leave it like. I felt this bad, <laughs> say no and stop and actually be able to stop myself talking for the next 15 minutes solid with my notes. <laughs> Today's not that day. Sorry, folks. Even before seeing it, the Mulan comes with several problems. From the egregious $30 rental fee on top of the base subscription to Disney Plus to watch it, to Disney leaving cinema chains in the lurch by pulling it from theatrical distribution, a largely white Western production team, particularly the writers, the star seemingly supporting police brutality in Hong Kong, to the rather more important fact that some of Mulan's filming took place in Xinjiang, where the Chinese government has put a million Uyghurs into vocational education and training centres which is a very strange way to spell concentration camp. <laughs> That's Disney, folks. Owners of the happiest place on earth. For now, just let's get to the film. A live-action remake of sorts of Disney's own 1998 animation, Mulan is based on the 6th century Ballad of Mulan, which tells the tale of a young woman called Hua Mulan who disguised herself as a male soldier in order to fight in the Imperial Army. Here, northern China is threatened by an invasion of Rorans, led by Bore Khan, Jason Scott Lee, which I assume would be our current Prime Minister's warlord name. <laughs> he is helped in this by Gong Li's Jing Nang, a shape-shifting witch who has allied herself with the Khan so that she can receive the reward of living in society where she isn't persecuted for her powers. Though the film seems to avoid asking the question of why she just doesn't conquer China herself if she's that powerful. <laughs> the Emperor... A horrendously wasted Jet Li, whose role almost entirely consists of, right, sit here in this silly chair for a while, orders conscription for the army, and when the officers enforcing the decree visit Mulan's village, she pinches the armour and sword of the only male in her family, her disabled father, played by Chi Ma, apparently now the Chinese every dad, <laughs> and offskies to the command of Donnie Yen's commander Tung passing herself off as Hua Jun, a male soldier. She then takes part in an uninspired training montage that lasts approximately forever <laughs> and is, it seems, utterly pointless and misguided anyway, beyond showing that Mulan's a bit nifty with her spear, as, despite her training being in the infantry, her unit's first battle shows them suddenly to be cavalry. It's well thought out, this film. 
Talking of well thought out, by this point the film has established comprehensively that the Khan's army, with the witch's help, is unstoppable, with fort after fort falling easily with not a single survivor left. They're simply portrayed as too powerful, so any resistance to them at all at this stage would stretch credibility beyond breaking point. Naturally, Milan's squad of infantry trained cavalry fight them to a standstill. <laughs> then Milan shows off her general level military nous by tricking the Ruin army, apparently unfamiliar with snow, despite coming from a place with snow, <laughs> into bringing down an avalanche upon themselves, which looks every bit as stupid as that sounds, and is clearly just there because it's in the animation, or so I believe. <laughs> But it doesn't matter, because it was all a diversion. And now the Emperor is in danger. And Milan, just kicked out of the army for being a woman, is now kicked back into the army to lead it, despite being a woman. A big fight ensues, which includes, amongst other themes, a scene in which some of Milan's comrades demand that she locks them into a strange, valley-like chamber of dubious purpose with their enemies, despite said enemies having been shown multiple times to be capable of running directly up sheer walls with no extra equipment. It's all so stupid and so very, very dull, with the filmmakers clearly being concerned with looks above anything and everything else. And undeniably, Mulan does look good, but in a very sterile way. Everything is colourful and beautiful and pristine and empty, and therefore horrible and free of any substance. The ridiculous grandeur of the Imperial Palace might invite a social commentary, but there's no reading of social inequality in a feudal kingdom when the village of the farming peasants is also pristine, and their clothes perfect and beautiful and riotously colourful. Beyond, it looks quite nice sometimes, there is absolutely nothing to commend Mulan, the performances least of all. Donnie Yen is terrible. Gong Lee is terrible. Jason Scott Lee is particularly terrible. Though to be fair, he is given the absolute worst of the insipid, woefully basic dialogue. And Jifei Lu in the lead role is one of the least charismatic performances I've seen in a good long while. Even the action is insipid and uninspired. Many scenes, particularly in the finale, use a lot of the style of the wuxia films with which many are familiar. But without any of the flair or style that you would expect to go with them, and not an awful lot of skill either, and certainly no sense of fun. And I haven't even gotten into the bizarre choice to take the Chinese concept of qi and basically turn it into the force, <laughs> let alone its stereotypes of ancient Chinese culture. No wonder it's bombed in China. Absolute pish, avoid. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. So, <laughs> not going to add too much to that with you. Um, nothing about either the Genesis or promotional material for it sounded in the least bit attractive to me. So, sounds like I made probably the correct decision on that front. Oh yes, yes, you did. Um, it's it's awful. It's no, I, I've said them enough. It, it's rubbish. <laughs> Don't watch it. Yes. Don't give Disney your money. So, we're going to move on to another film which is definitely not incredibly generic, Scott. Yes, uh, Ava. Um, Jessica Chastain here plays Ava Falconer, an ex-army highly trained assassin that's started to question her orders and her life decisions, much to her handler, John Malkovich's Duke's displeasure, uh, but more importantly, the displeasure of the boy, boss of this particular outfit, Colin Farrell's Simon. Uh, after a 
particularly botched operation, Simon uh, decides that Ava's a liability that must be disposed of, and while Ava attempts to reconnect with her family and ex-fiancé back home, hence conflict arises. While Ava has an impressive cast, they are entirely wasted in a script that is composed com- almost completely of clichés, and for all of Chastain's talent, she is not an action star, and all of the fights she's involved with look exceedingly unconvincing. As such, it's very difficult to get into Ava, and so it comes as no surprise that I didn't get into it. Um, I checked out of this film very early on, and so didn't appreciate even the moments of character building that this sort of cast should have been knocking out of the park. Uh, None of that grabbed me at all. Ava is very much checking the phone consistently, the movie, and while it's not abysmal, it's certainly unremarkable enough to recommend that you completely avoid it. Drew, I don't think you got any more joy out of this than I did. Um, Possibly even less nice. (laughs) It's so generic it's yep. <laughs> I was trying to find a suitable um, adjective to stick in front of that and I couldn't find one so it's, <laughs> it's so so generic it's it's definitely one of those films you get to the end of and it's like how did they get this cast exactly yeah yeah. especially yeah. Um, with Jessica Chastain John Malkovich and Colin Farrell they're way way above a film yeah. like this I did wonder, I was trying to find earlier what the budget for this was and not been able to get it, but it, given that it does not look all that expensive a film to produce, it must surely be one of these cases where like 90% of the production budget has gone directly into these actors' paychecks. Um, yeah, I thought I'd be surprised. Yeah, um, I was actually paying enough attention to see all the problems with it too, but first of all, who is it Jessica Chastain works for? Because she clearly used to be in the army. It kind of feels like they're suggesting it's the CIA. And at one point, while they start the film off talking about the organisation, at one point, and this could just be crappy writing, John Malkovich very clearly refers to it instead as the company, which is a a generic term also um, is how the CIA is referred to by people who work for the CIA. Is it? I assume not because they do seem to be doing private stuff, but it's not really clear. So like... And that matters in as much as while um, there are certainly big ethical things, but if you think you're doing something for the good of your country rather than just a criminal organisation, it changes morality quite a lot. Yes, I, I don't believe it is the CIA. Um, no, it is, I don't it think is, so. It appears to be primarily some clumsily worded private company that's doing this and it's difficult to say for sure because basically all of that backstory comes in the form of like backgrounds to the opening credits where yeah. basically it's trying to tell all that story um, stuff that you might actually want to do with you know the actors you've hired or the script you've written but no um, it's left left to um, background graphics and the credit sequence so you know that's the sort of level of film we're playing with here so Locked putting a lot of thought into headlines it. and stuff rather than you know actually having anybody tell you anything yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, which does change how sympathetic you would feel to the character Right, again, you find it quite clear she's just been paid fairly by money, so you think, even if she works for the CIA, it's as a contractor rather than yeah. you know, thinking somehow you're doing something for your country. But there are a few cards, I think, beyond, you know, like serial killers or something, but there are a few types of character less sympathetic <laughs> and less agreeable than a hitman. Yeah. You know, um, basically... If you're not Martin Blank, go home. Yes. <laughs> you know, sympathetic hitmen begin and end with Martin Blank. So when you're supposed to get the idea that Ava is somehow tortured when her 
wrangling with this seems to go as far as asking the person they killed if they know why she's killing them and then killing them anyway. Like, this card <laughs> has no morality. <laughs> she's just as bad as all the people that are trying to kill her, so I don't care. And yeah. I shouldn't care. <laughs> and yeah, the rest of it's just so generic. And what is going on with Colin Farrell's haircut and facial hair? Yes. <laughs> his moustache in particular yeah <laughs> yeah, it's, it's truly awful and and I spent far more time wondering about that than anything else because well something had to entertain me during this film <laughs> it's it's absolute generic garbage and it's quite, it's one of those things you think is this some sort of tag stodge yes <laughs> <laughs> had they perhaps these actors because they normally get quite highly paid, have they not been in anything for a year and they don't get their medical benefits or something unless they've got some sort of credit thing within a year or something like that? It feels like that sort of film. Yeah. That it's it's slightly enough produced that it doesn't look like absolute garbage. You know, that it looks like a, a legitimate film. Um, but everything else is just nonsense. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is It is bad. All the, all the action's pretty bad. Um, none of it's particularly convincing. The characters are roundly unsympathetic, none of them are remotely likeable, and even when it gets to the point where it's trying to humanise them, but by that point I just stopped paying attention to it, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, no, by no means a great film. No, Not the worst thing you'll ever see in your life, but it's just so bad. As, as you say, I just don't understand how something this insipid gets this level of cast. Um, I, yeah. would, I would... It's the sort of thing I expect from Netflix action properties. <laughs> so that's the level we're playing at these days. Yeah, just just not good. <laughs> that's about right. Yeah, that's, yeah. It, this is definitely one to avoid. Again, I think I probably only watched this because, well, it's a new film and, and I know they'll be drying up soon. But it's like, oh, just could I stay in a light car? And Colin Farrell, great. John Malkovich, he can be a great deal of fun. But no, it just spoils anything it's got on its favour. A waste of everybody's time. So thanks for that, Mr. Tate Taylor and Mr. <laughs> Matthew Martin and everybody involved with it. <laughs> yes. Right. Can things be saved with Les Miserables? Not that one, the new one. It's not that one doesn't help, given that there are an awful lot of films with this name, as you, yeah. you will find Not the other one either. Up in IMDb. <laughs> yes. The suburban Paris commune of Montfermeil is famous as the location of Monsieur et Madame Thénardier's inn in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables and the place of his writing, and infamous in more contemporary times as the location of the Les Game Banlieu, or housing estate. It is here that Mali-born French director Lage Lee's Les Miserables is set, a film that begins by showing throngs of people watching, then celebrating France's 2018 World Cup victory. Notable is the fact that many of these people are, or are children of, immigrants, largely from Africa, pointedly showing that, despite the belief of many, these people are French. That it then shows the title, which can be translated simply into English as The Miserable Ones, over the cheering crowds filling the Champs-Élysées, gives an equally pointed idea of Lee's cynicism. The story of the film begins with the first day in the job of newly transferred police officer Stéphane Ruiz, Damien Bonnard, who will work with Alexis Menentes Chris and Jebril Zongas Guada as a squad of the anti-crime unit, whose job is, ostensibly, to prevent crime. But it seems <laughs> to actually consist of bigotry, racism, harassment, chauvinism, and a general low-grade rottenness to the inhabitants of Le Bosquet perhaps even extending to a little light corruption. 
if the sweltering heat doesn't disincline them. Ruiz is shocked by their behaviour, but as the new guy feels unable to do much about it. Not least because the squad leader, the Sergeant Chris, seems to have the support of their captain, and the fact that within minutes Chris has dubbed him Greaser because of his hair, to denigrate him and put him in his place. A leisurely paced first hour paints a portrait of the estate and the power dynamics that play within it, including the popular local mayor, Steve Tienchu, and the assumed shadow power of Almemi Canute's gangster-turned-faithful Muslim Salah, and how they all interact with the police. Tensions begin to rise, though, when an armed group belonging to a circus drive into the estate, threatening to burn it to the ground and commit murder if the kidnapped Johnny is not returned. Johnny, it turns out, is a lion cub, and he's been stolen by Issa, played by Issa Pirika, a quite committed juvenile delinquent. After identifying the lion snaffler, the squad attempt to arrest him and head off the danger of a race-driven battle between the circus workers and the less uh, the labels inhabitants. And that's when things go, in the parlance of our times, tits up. The squad are harassed and pelted with missiles by the group of young people Issa was playing football with, and in the confusion, a police flashball goes off in Issa's face. This is further complicated by the fact that the whole thing has been recorded by a drone owned by a child from the estate. A series of standoffs and chases then take place as Chris and Guada try to recover the drone's footage and the mayor, having got wind of the incident, tries to get a hold of it himself to serve his own ends and a child's potential life-threatening injuries take a back seat. But even when things seem resolved, they're far from it, and injured pride, frustration, anger, and simmering resentment set the scene for a violent finale. It's a powerful film, though you might be inclined to think that it's a bit heavy-handed at times and over the top. However, it would probably be useful to know that, in the director's own words, the whole film is witnessing what I witnessed as a teenager, Everything in it is inspired by real events, from the first scene to the very last scene. That last scene, in fact, is based on something that Lee, who started filming and documenting Labour Skate 17, actually filmed. It is even shot in the very stairwell where the incident took place. And even the lying thing really happened. Lee Miserab is, perhaps surprisingly, relatively balanced, especially in the figure of Ruiz as a decent police officer. Again, in the director's own words, the idea was not to take sides against the police despite everything that happened in reality. I wanted to be even-handed. Everyone, people who live on the estate and the police, they are all lame as Arab. This is not to say that the police are let off, far from it, but the director could have chosen to excoriate them, but didn't. The film brings to mind Matthew Cassavetes' 1995 Lahaine, an acknowledged influence on the director, and there's a real vitality to Le Miserable, and a real sense of place to its depiction of Labo Skep, much of that owing to Lashley's documentary background, and some also to the 200 extras, every single one of whom lives on the estate. Where it perhaps suffers is that, while the Ban Lu certainly has a character, for the featured humans that's much less the case. It would be great to see an exploration of the bullying, small-minded Chris, and even more so the clearly conflicted Guada, a child of African immigrants himself, but content to be complicit in the sergeant's behaviour. It's a place that really probably deserves a TV series, one that could more fully explore its interactions and the internal and external factors influence it. But it's certainly something I very much recommend watching. 
And I'll just finish with a passage from the preface of Victor Hugo's novel that gives an excellent flavour of Ladge Lee's message. So long as there shall exist, by reason of law and custom, a social condemnation which, in the face of civilization, artificially creates hells on earth and complicates a destiny that is divine with human fatality, so long as the three problems of the age, the degradation of man by poverty, the ruin of women by starvation, and the dwarfing of childhood by physical and spiritual night are not solved, so long as, in certain regions, social asphyxia shall be possible, in other words, and from a yet more extended point of view, so long as ignorance and misery remain on earth, books like this cannot be useless. And you could perhaps just exchange books for films there. <laughs> yes, um, I was rather fond of this. This is one of those good films that you hear about. Um, you don't necessarily see them all that often, but yeah, um, some really compelling raw performances. The storyline's great healthy dose of social commentary which makes it a very heady heady mix and it's got a lion cub what could possibly be better than that uh yeah a tiger uh, cub that's true they're cool but just puppies puppies anyway (laughs) basically we're saying that this film should have contained more baby animals um yeah (laughs) no that that, that, aside from just just being an an enjoyable film on its own terms uh this is Again, I don't like to use the throw it around, but yeah, it's an important work considering the ongoing discourse in, in, in quotation marks about you know whether or not black people should or should not be allowed to be gunned down by the police with immunity, and you know whether or not those displaced by the consequences of imperialism and unchecked capitalism uh, should be allowed to settle in the places that are responsible for said displacement. Perhaps by my completely neutral framing of those questions, you can tell where I <laughs> fall on those issues. But uh, yeah, uh, ultimately, my recommendation is, of course, that you should watch this film and we must seize the means of production. And furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed. <laughs> Look, um, yeah, there's really an awful lot to like here. I quite enjoyed it. It's not perfect. There's a few things that, um, well, they didn't need to be tied up, but there's, there's points that kind of are introduced and don't seem to go anywhere. Like, um, you know, early on, um, it's Guada. I believe who is seems to be sexually harassed by his boss, the the female um, police chief. But then that doesn't go anywhere. And then the, later on, the, the, you bring up the, the Muslim Brotherhood's kind of introduced at points in it. But and I thought they were trying to be set up as like a a third axis in the sort of um, like a vying for control of the, the band loose between the the him and the police and the the, the uh, travelers and the and I guess the mayor. The, mm-hmm. the mayor's uh, guys as well, but they kind of just more or less vanish out into the background, which is is fair enough. It's not completely clear where all the kind of the kids decide to just out of nowhere form their own cooperative in favour of beating up policemen. That seems to come out of nowhere a bit as well, as does not really imply that they have that kind of level of um, forethought and expertise. But you know, I, I don't think any of that actually hurts the film um in many ways it makes it a more interesting and more compelling watch that you know like life it's all a bit messy there's no simple solutions to anything and all this is interconnected in a a, mm-hmm. a weave of a, a tapestry of misery and nonsense so yes um yeah it's, it's a really enjoyable film with lots of really great performances and a really uh, enjoyable story to pull everything through and uh yeah i i enjoyed it a great deal 
it's, it was good. I recommend it. It's why a lot of the points you're making there, Scott, is very much why I would think that this would actually really benefit from being like a mini series. Yeah, doing a kind of um, City of Men style um, follow up to City of God, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something like that. Or I've seen it um, compared in some ways to The Wire, and I can kind of see where it's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the way it portrayed Baltimore. Because, like, the Muslim Brotherhood in this, they are it's quite a minor role and they're portrayed as either somewhere between benign or possibly benevolent. Mm. And, and maybe they are, because I mean, the, the most that I know about the Muslim Brotherhood is really was when they come to power in Egypt, and that was a very different thing. Yeah. I, I assume it's the same organisation, not just the same name. Mm. But the um, but they were shown, like, they were just trying to, you know, get the kids off the street and they wanted to go to the OS, but Christian groups do all that all the time. And yeah. it's, I mean, there are problems with just getting kids involved in religion at all that I have. But, you know, it could just be benign as people just generally care about the welfare of these kids. Or it, it may be, like you're saying, like there's there's actually more of a power play sense where we're a bit strong, but certainly kind of a hearts and minds influence kind of thing going on there. Yeah. A miniseries could really be able to explore that. But uh, so that that's much more frustration because I think this is clearly a place that has a lot of stories to tell. Oh yes, yes. And because largely comes from this very community, and these are all based on his true experiences. That you could have a really, really strong series in there. I think, yeah. um, without losing any of the the mirrored reality of it. But as a film, it's just that those are kind of frustrations because. You'd like to see, like, to learn more. And for a two-hour film, it's still really packed. Yes. So, yeah, that that's that's a problem. That's, that's a really good film. It's, um, I think I hadn't heard of this. I only um, watched this because it was on Radio 4's The Film Programme a couple of weeks ago. Right. I thought, that sounded really interesting. So I decided to watch it for this episode of the podcast. And I was like, oh, I'm glad I did, because this is smashing. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's bleak in many ways um but it's very very good and very very worthwhile watching absolutely absolutely yeah no i don't have anything else to add to that really (laughs) (laughs) there's a very good film indeed yes so that's us for this episode then we will be returning at the start of next month with well what should be a, a episode about stop motion animation but for now if you want to get in contact with us you can do you know on that their internet thing you can do it on Twitter, twitter.com slash fudsandfilm, or on basically that, that, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that place that um, I think is a, an evil and a genuine ill society, and I honestly don't want to promote it, so I'm not even going to mention it anymore, so ignore me. Um, and email, which is podcast at fudsandfilm.com. Those are the best places. And once again, I, apparently, I can't even do a normal conversation without having written it down first, so bye. <laughs> Yes, bye. And be excellent to each other. Station. Station.